Welcome, I'm Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki in Memoriam podcast. This podcast is created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute, New York. Penderecki in Memoriam podcast unveils a multifaceted portrait of Krzysztof Penderecki with commentary from musicians, colleagues, radio programmers, and writers who lend insight and memories of Poland's greatest modern composer. This podcast is part of Penderecki in Memoriam Worldwide Project, honoring the life and legacy of the great composer. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Gramophone Magazine noted that Grammy-winning conductor Joanne Folletta leads performances that are assured, spontaneous, and superbly played. An award-winning musician and member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and National Council on the Arts, Ms. Folletta has introduced over 500 works by American composers, including over 100 world premieres, and her discography tops 120 titles. Not only does she lead the Buffalo Philharmonic, but is also music director laureate of the Virginia Symphony, principal guest conductor of the Brevard Music Center, and artistic advisor of the Hawaii Symphony and Cleveland Institute of Music Orchestra. Hailed for having Toscanini's tight control over her ensembles, Walter's affectionate balancing of inner voices, Stokowski's gutsy showmanship, and a controlled frenzy worthy of Bernstein, Joanne Folletta is a leading force for the music of our time. In 2018, the Buffalo Philharmonic made their first international tour in three decades and performed at Warsaw's Beethoven Easter Festival. The impetus for the tour was the BPO's friendship with Krzysztof Penderecki and his wife, Easter Festival founder and artistic director, Elzbieter Penderecka. Maestra Folletta also made history as the first American woman conductor to lead an orchestra at the prestigious event. Joanne Folletta is here with us to discuss the great Polish composer, Krzysztof Penderecki. Hi, Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hello, Max. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Joanne, what were your first impressions of meeting Penderecki? Well, when I met him in Poland, I met him in the presence of Madame, his wife, and I was in awe of him. But he is a very, very gentle person. He was a little bit removed, but that gentleness we saw right away. And I was so impressed that he accepted our invitation because I went there partly in person, invite him to come and conduct. And we were at their home outside of Krakow. And he said, yes, he would like to. And immediately, he told me the program he would like to conduct. And I thought that was so amazing that he was able in his mind to imagine what would be the best thing to bring to Buffalo. And he said, I'd like to do Dvorak 7th. And I'd like to do Beethoven, Overture to Creatures of Prometheus. And I would like to do my double concerto, but I want to change it. The double concerto at that time had been really recently written for violin and viola. He said, I want to change it for violin and cello. So you will do the first performance of this new version. So I said yes immediately. We were all thrilled and he came to Buffalo for a glorious week.
For our conversation today, I wanted to touch on three Penderecki pieces that you've performed and recorded, one of which you just mentioned, the double concerto, the horn concerto, subtitled Vinterreise, and the adagio from Symphony No. 3. Now, the double concerto, a commission from Vienna's Musikerein, which marked the society's bicentenary, provided Penderecki an opportunity to try out an idea, I believe, that was suggested to him by Julian Rocklin, who wanted a work that he could play and record both the solo and violin and viola parts for. That's amazing. That configuration has really not been done very often. Mozart's Symphonia Concertante in E-flat major is probably the best-known version, and Max Brook and Benjamin Britten have also tried their hand at that configuration. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on why that configuration has not been attempted more often? Is it the difficulty of writing a piece like that? You know, I think it's hard to achieve a real equality of the two instruments. And of course, as you go to more of them, it becomes even more difficult. I mean, the reason that the Mozart Symphonia for four winds probably has never been done before, you know, in that combination, no one else has ever attempted that, is that it's very hard to get both to shine. I think that that was why the maestro wanted to try a version of the double concerto substituting cello for viola. Because I imagine that he felt in the viola and the violin discussion, you know, their discourse together, that the registers were too similar to achieve real independence and real diversity of sound. So he was very, very interested in having it played on cello. And I worked very hard with the soloist and with the orchestra. And I think in the end, he was pleased with that pairing, the violin and cello. when he wrote the initial configuration for violin and viola, he didn't feel like the viola was subordinate in any way to the violin. Would you say that in the arrangement with cello and violin, that's even more apparent, where the cello even has a greater role?
Yes, you're absolutely right. They are equal partners in this. I mean, they're like two protagonists on the stage. And of course, the cello has a very different personality than the viola, and that comes through. That sort of strength of personality because of the register, I think makes the piece even more startling and wonderful. After they did that in Buffalo, we were able to bring the piece to Alice Tully and decided to offer the double concerto. So having done it then myself, after hearing the maestro, do it. I agree, it's just a stunning piece. The piece begins with this interweaving conversation between the soloists and then progressing into the fuller sound accompanied by strings. And then the vivo section, this festive yet very demonic atmosphere with triplets in ascending semitones, sort of a trembling sound, almost like a scherzo. It's true. It's very effective. It's filled with energy in the way that he's able to do that, exploiting the characteristics of the instruments. I know the young people in the orchestra now were totally dazzled by it. He gives the two solos a life of their own. They play alone, they play as a duo in conversation, and then the orchestra gets involved.
There are all of those very different sound worlds in this one piece. It's rare that you have a brand new piece that is immediately embraced, where people just say, this is an amazing piece of music, and that's what we felt.
dramatic culmination in this quiet passacaglia with the solo instruments uniting in octaves and then interrupted by these extended cadenzas. It's really a showpiece, and I suppose that the maestro was thinking about that. I don't know if he got any instructions of how to, you know, what the soloist wanted, the original soloist, but he certainly gives them a lot of chance to shine. And I think that makes for a kind of landscape that's really irresistible. You actually see them as characters in a drama, and we don't know exactly what the drama is, but we can see it unfolding. We can become a part of that, and the orchestra really loved playing it with them. Thank you.
Okay, so moving on to the horn concerto, subtitled Winterreise. Now, this is not a Schubert Winterreise. No. It's a Penderecki Winterreise. That's right. And the interesting thing about this is that both Jacek Muzik, who is our soloist, he's our solo horn in Buffalo and a fantastic virtuoso, and I puzzled over this. I mean, Winterreise, Winter Journey, was it connected to Schubert, which he felt, or was it simply the idea of a winter journey in Poland, perhaps, the darkness of that, which we, of course, share in Buffalo, so we know about that. When we actually got to go and visit the maestro at his home, we asked him to explain what that meant. And very interestingly, he declined to do that. And I really admired him because I think he felt, and he told us, it's up to your imagination. I'm not saying it's about Schubert. I'm not saying it's about winter. You use your imagination. And that actually was a wonderful answer because everyone will have a different idea of what this means. But he would not say that it was inspired by Schubert or by winter. But I still think there's a sort of darkness in this piece and there's sort of a sense of being led through a journey by the horn who has a tremendously virtuoso part to play. A great masterpiece as well. And it's a very virtuosic piece and a very exuberant piece. And although not commonly played, it's really a piece that every horn player who's interested in unusual sounds and playing techniques is familiar with. certainly puts the hornist through their paces because it's very difficult and the extremes of register and quick tempos I mean it's a virtuoso showpiece but he knew he was writing for virtuosos he was able to exploit the horn in a brilliant way and our audience who of course was hearing it for the first time in Buffalo was thrilled by it it was absolutely thrilling and again not an easy piece to put together but Thank <laughs> you. 
in the end with the maestro you always had the feeling that the challenges that were built into the piece were there intrinsically they were there because they had to be that's what made it that piece they weren't there just to make things difficult they were there because they created a sound and effect a sort of virtuosity that was necessary so it was really a thrill to do that piece and to record it Penderecki's career, of course, was divided. The earlier period was his avant-garde, and the later period was more romantic. And the horn concerto, which was composed in 2008, seems to be a little counter to this development. Although it's very evocative, very powerful, kind of wistful, it seems to contain the grim textures that are similar to his earlier works. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I mean, he really went into a more romantic vein, I think. But this piece harkens back to something, and I'm so glad he did it, because it's very authentic Penderecki voice. And it's maybe in writing for the horn and for the difficulties of writing for the horn, he was able to go back to a different time in his life. I don't know. I wish I had asked him that. But it does harken back to a more challenging style of writing, although I know that audiences hearing it have absolutely been captivated by it. But it is a bit thorny, and it is quite an impressive peace. Moving on to the Adagio from the Symphony No. 3, which was commissioned and completed for the 100-year celebration of the Munich Philharmonic, It's in five movements and has a number of stylistic features which exemplify Penderecki's music, particularly of the 1980s. We did the Adagio in its original version for orchestra. And we did it really as a tribute to the maestro because when we were coming to Poland, with American music, and that's what he asked for. He wanted to celebrate Leonard Bernstein and the American school. So we brought Samuel Barber's first symphony, we brought Bernstein's symphonic dances from West Side Story, and we brought Gershwin's concerto in F. But we thought we cannot go and play in the presence of this great artist without some way of saying thank you to him. So we performed the adagio, and it's stunning. This is the height of romanticism in his voice. Very expressive, searing in parts, comforting in parts, beautiful writing for the winds and the strings. They're able to really sing. They're able to be emotional. And even though it was a short piece, we felt that we could say something to the maestro about how we admire him and how his music has changed the music world for us. And in fact, at that time, we all considered him the single most important living composer. And when he stood up to take a bow at the end of that, the entire hall stood up and looked at him. And Max, there was a feeling of such love in that room in Warsaw. There was such a feeling of love for him and appreciation that I will never forget that. It was a very emotional moment. That is definitely the sentiment of everyone, the love for this man. And when so many people say the very same things about someone which are all positive and have great variety about his genius as a musician and also as a person. It really makes quite an impact. 
It does. And he was, in so many ways, such a gentle, quiet person, too. He wasn't a person who was demanding. He wasn't a person who, you know, was insistent on being treated a certain way. He was just an artist. He lived his life as an artist and just was a beautiful person. When you went to their home, I hope you got to see the tree collection. Well, we didn't go in. We weren't able to go in that day, but uh, I've seen photographs of it. And one of my favorite photos of him is one that I'm sure you've seen of him carrying a tree, you know, a fairly large tree, obviously going to plant it in a place that he had chosen just for that tree. And I thought this caring of this gardener, this eternal gardener who's taking care of his special love of trees, I mean, he may have had hundreds and hundreds of varieties of trees there. But just the kind of respect for life that he had and beauty, I always thought that was a very special thing about him. One more note on the adagio. The orchestration, which is this sort of expansive unfolding of melodic ideas and textures and late 19th century style, employing both solo passages in the winds and the brass and then themes that overlap and go into do well, and the arc of the movement is beautiful, too, because it starts almost from nothing so quietly, and then in the middle blooms to something that is warm, but also quite poignant as well. And then at the very end goes back to very quiet as sound possible. So a beautiful expression. In closing, what would you say you've either learned from the man over the years and your experiences with him, or what your remembrances were last March 29th when he passed away? I will always remember his kindness, his gentleness to us, his kindness to the orchestra. Well, they were quite in awe of him and a little bit afraid of not living up to his expectations, but his gentleness and at the core always was the music, whether it was his own music or the Dvorak which he so obviously loved. He had the true heart of an artist and lived his life in that way. And I think that is a shining example for all of us of someone who is so true to what he believes in and what he loves. Maestra Joanne Folletta, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss the great Polish composer Krzysztof Penderecki. Thank you, Max. It was an honor to speak about the maestro. This is Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki In Memoriam podcast, created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute New York. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Krzysztof Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Make sure to subscribe.